Braves and baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, joined by Corey McCartney here from the Kia Studios and Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Great to be with you on another Sunday here. We've got a lot of baseball to talk Specifically, some Braves baseball and what was kind of a mixed bag of a road trip, Corey. There's really no two ways around that. We had a series against the Brewers in which I felt like the Braves had a chance to win all three games. And then we had a series against the Miami Marlins in which I felt like the Braves were right there again. They won that series. That's a big step in the right direction because prior to today, the Braves, or prior to this weekend, I should say, the Braves could not say, hey, we've won a series on the road this year, which is really strange to be saying a week out from Memorial Day. Well, we looked at this stretch when you had, going into Friday, 29 straight games, that's nine series, all against teams with losing records. They get through the first series of that stretch with a series win. So, right. you know, from that end, you know, mission accomplished, but still seven and a half games back, uh, you know, worth noting that they were as far as eight games back a year yeah. ago, and they've already hit eight games back this season. So, uh, you know, still very much a work in progress for this team, but, you know, they can check that box now. They've got that road series win. Yeah, and there are a lot of boxes to check, though, for this Atlanta Braves club as they try to get themselves on the track they want to be on. It's really a golden opportunity where they are in the schedule right now to get themselves back above 500 and trending in the right direction in the National League East standings because they are currently in the midst of 29 games against clubs under 500. We're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to catch you up on everything else that's been going on in this week in Braves baseball in just a moment. But I want to let you know, if you like what you're hearing here, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure you're following us on social media. You can find me at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And, of course, you can follow Sports Radio 92.9 The Game at 92.9 92.9 the game. But let's do get started with our This Week in Braves baseball. And uh, coming off a difficult end to the a down note as far as the end of this road trip is concerned. But Atlanta lost what I felt like was a very winnable series in Milwaukee. Then they did go and win this series in Miami, their first road series win of 2022. And among the stories that I guess you could start to pull out of this is the fact that one thing we've noticed at the top of the order is A, Ronald Acuna Jr., after that groin injury that had him on the sidelines for five games, has been back in there on a regular basis. He was a DH in all three games down in Miami. He did get back in action there. And, and Corey, he's been running wild. Uh, you know, this is like 1980s-level Hulkamania running wild, too, on the base pass. He's already swiped eight bags in 15 games this year. He is on quite the pace. And if you're wondering, is this leg going to stop that dimension of his game or take that away? The answer is no. Yeah, 92 steals he's on pace for right now. And last season, yeah, I mean, Trey Turner led the NL with 32 a year ago. Whit Merrifield topped the AL at 40. Nobody has topped 90 since Ricky Henderson in 1988 with 93. 
I mean, Acuna literally, on his own, out mm-hmm. there changing that narrative that the steal is dead. Now, it's important to point out that's a 162-game pace, yeah. but when you do think about the frequency of the stolen base, especially in today's game where we've talked about the three true outcomes, where we've talked about analytics, where we've talked about teams going away from taking risks on the base paths, Ronald Acuna Jr. said, okay, that's all great. I'm going to put it over here, but I'm going to take the extra bases where I can. And sometimes that means pilfering those extra bases, and he's done a great job of that. And this is a team that you know really has been waiting on him to get going. I think he's holding up his end of the bargain, but there's a lot to talk about when it comes to down in the order, and especially when you take a trip through the middle of the Braves order. In Miami, we saw William Contreras go on a nice little spree of hitting a couple of more home runs. I want to put that off to the side, though, for a moment because I do think he could be maybe part of the answer at the bottom of the order, but I really want to focus more so in on the fact that if you do try to get creative and get a guy right now like William Contreras, who has been hitting fairly well in his opportunities to do so, you're really limited because of Ronald Acuna Jr. not playing the field. He's your DH. That means Marcelo Zuna, who should be your DH, is playing the field. Also, Contreras being the team's second catcher with Manny Pena on the shelf for the rest of the year, there's a risk there. So there's not really a clear answer to say, okay, we want to get this guy some more bats. How do we do it? Until Ronald Acuna Jr. is in right field every day, which I'm not knocking him for. I'm just saying this is part of his progression and part of his comeback. Until he is, it doesn't make DH this revolving door where he can just get guys at bats. No, it doesn't. And, and you know, Brian Snicker mentioned this over the weekend. You know, when you start trying to think about you know, the possibility of, of Contreras in the outfield, which is something that they had talked about in the spring, you know, that's kind of out the window now when yeah. you're relying upon him with the lack of depth that they now have at the catcher spot. Uh, you know, the, the biggest issue, though, has just been, you know, with this team, and certainly it's, it's all been a trickle-down, right? It's because you haven't had Ronald Cunha Jr. for long stretches. You, you know, haven't been able to necessarily have the optimum look in the outfield with Marcelo Zuna being at DH because you need him in the outfield because Acuna needs time at DH. It's just all led to this kind of, work in progress mm-hmm. note with this team and two through five right now I mean 25th in average 26 in way to run create a plus no team's heart of the order has been worse with runners in scoring position yeah I mean it's just I mean having Azuna hitting in you know eight straight games and an OPS over a thousand in that stretch it's as long as such streak uh, since, since 2020 is a great start I mean certainly today they moved you know Travis Darno to four you know Austin Riley gets slipped down to six I mean mm-hmm. there's little variations you can make but it ultimately feels like until I mean you're right until you have Ronald Cunha Jr. going out there every day and playing in an outfield spot, this team is going to continue to go through these growing pains with all these other posi- these positions in the order and positions in the field. Well, they kind of just you know continue this you know let's get the yellow tape up and just say work in progress because it yeah. feels like that's where we're going to be for a little while. It does feel like this lineup is kind of under construction, yeah. and a lot of folks have asked, and we've talked about this on Battery Power, part of SB Nation, as we do our weekly videos there and. You know, folks are kind of looking at it like, okay, well, we need to move so-and-so. It's like, all right, well, where do you want to move him to? Well, we need to move this guy and this guy and this guy. I'm like, well, all of a sudden, not everybody can bat ninth because they start to work their way back up. That's the very simple math. Also, you can't take what's supposed to be your most productive hitters and just drop them to the bottom half of the order and take Dansby Swanson and Travis Demerit and Travis Darno and whoever else, that and Adam Duvall, perhaps, who's comprising your five or six through nine spots in the order because two, three, and four aren't hitting. And it's not just – I mean – it feels like slumps can be contagious. When you get hot, that can also be contagious. You do start to build that momentum. We just haven't found that kind of contagion here in 2022 because you haven't been able to get multiple guys going in a way that makes you feel like that's the Atlanta Braves offense. It was so powerful in the second half last year. That's the kind of Atlanta Braves offense that they've really been able to lean on over the past few years in this runners and scoring position stuff. 
I mean, you look at it every single night. It's like eight, nine guys left on base, one for eight, one for nine, two for ten with runners in scoring position. There have been opportunities, and particularly on a day like Sunday where Ian Anderson's throwing a good game through six innings. He did give up a couple of runs there. Came back out in the seventh. That's a decision that I'm not necessarily all about, but a couple of more runs get charged to him. But if you're able to cash in on some of your opportunities or find some opportunities on days like that, not necessarily days where Sandy Alcantara is pitching because he's awful good, but you're asking your pitchers to basically be perfect in a lot of situations if your offense continues to leave a village on the base paths every single night, and that has been the way it's felt an awful lot. I think that's been, you know, as we talked about on Battery Power this week, uh, the two biggest issues with this team have been plate discipline, but more so situational hitting, and they were 3-for-11 with runners in scoring position Sunday in Miami. Uh, They're 27th in OPS in high-leverage situations, 23rd with runners in scoring position, 20th with runners on. So that's, you know, when you look at the amount of home runs this team hits, the reason they've all been of the solo variety is the second most in the majors is they just can't get it done with men on. And and obviously, as you just talked about, it's been far worse in those two through five spots in the order, Mm -hmm. and I think that magnifies it. But this has been, you know, an issue that's stretched across. I mean, they're no team struck out more. You know, they obviously because of that, they have the lowest uh, contact rate in the game. Uh, you know, they're swinging at the seven most, most pitches outside the zone. And then yeah. they've got a rash of guys who are the ones swinging at those pitches. Ozzie Albies, Adam Duvall, Marcelo Zuna. They're all in the top 30 across the entire game and swinging. Every, it feels like everyone's pressing at the exact same time. I agree. As opposed to, you know, talk about things being contagious. As opposed to be like, all right, let's just move that line along. Right now, it's just like they're just all just... You know, you paint a picture of the strike zone, the strike zone, and they're all just willy nilly just swinging way outside of it. Yeah, it does. Seem, it feels like that. I mean, there's some of the struggles that look a little bit different, though. Like uh, Matt Olson's struggles have been going on yep. the longest, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him as we continue here on from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9. The game is part of our this week in Braves baseball, and this has been several weeks worth of Braves baseball and several weeks worth of at bats. Basically, a month for Matt Olson that he's been on a cold spell and. When you're hitting second and you're getting the second most plate appearances by the very simple math of any hitter on the team, you need to get some production out of that. It wasn't long ago we were talking about, hey, it's been two and a half, three weeks. Marcelo Zuni is your cleanup man. He's had one run batted in over that period of time. That's not going to get it done, and neither are the kind of numbers that we've seen from Matt Olson after his three or so week hot start where it looked like, okay, well, this guy's going to come in. Is anybody going to help him out? Because the rest of the lineup wasn't hitting now. It's kind of been lights out in the bad way for Matt Olson. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to circle in on Ozzy Albies for a moment because he's the hitter that, to me, is it's just it's the biggest quandary of all of the ones that I have looked at because if you go back to 2021 where Ozzy was an extra base hitting machine where he's hitting his 30 home runs and you just look at him and you say, wow, this guy has really turned himself into a big-time power hitter. He had a career-high 47 barrels in his 508 batted ball events last year. And through 135 batted ball events here in 2022, he has six barrels. He is not hitting the ball hard with any great regularity, and that has also led led to the fact that his hit rate, hard hit rate, has dropped from 37.2% to 23.1%. That's one of the steepest drop-offs of any hitter in all of Major League Baseball year over year. And what it says is, yeah, Ozzy Albies might be making more contact, but it's not quality contact, and that's one of the things I think that's plaguing him, among others. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about this a week ago. You, I, I like to pull up the guy's StatCast pages, and to me it tells you, you know, on that barometer, is it is it, if the guy's blue, he's ice cold in mm-hmm. the area. If it's red, then, you know, he, he is absolutely red hot. And there is a surprising amount of blue on oh, Ozzy yeah. Albies' page. I mean, that, that hard hit rate you mentioned, that's in the bottom 2% 
of all qualified hitters. His average exit velocity is in the 17th percent. The barrel percentage, as you mentioned, is in the 19th percent. And, he, and then he has he's in the, the bottom 2 percent on that chase rate that I mentioned. Everything is just – none of it's working for him right now. No. I mean, it's – it, I mean, it's staggering. You think about, you know, the fact that he's, you know, where he's hitting at right now. I mean, again, uh, you know, the the K rate is is not real. Actually, it's been lower than it has been the last couple he's of years. That. Just yeah, he's just making really weak contact, which is not what you expect from this guy. No, and you talk about you don't want it to be red hot as it can be, fire yeah. engine red. You don't yep. want it to be cold, all the different shades of blue you're seeing. Ozzy Albee's Stackhouse page is like a 31 flavors. I mean, it is just <laughs> cold, 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 and more cold. You're just not finding the things you need to. The hard hit rate, the exit velocity. And even his expected stats, it's not like he's hitting into bad luck, which some of the Braves hitters, particularly I think Matt Olson at times this year, has really hit into. Marcelo Zuna maybe to a lesser extent. It's just you're not making quality contact. And while it is good to have bat-on-ball skills, it's not great to just have bat-on-ball, weak contact, ground outs, and the like that just aren't really helping you out in your individual pursuit of finding your way on base. And clearly, as a team needs some situational awareness, we're also not seeing enough of that, I think. And it's not to pick on Ozzie Albies because he has company at this table of Braves who I think are trying to get the job done, looking to get the job done, and unable to get it done for, again, a variety of reasons. People aren't all struggling the same, but one thing that is a common thread through all of this has been the fact that the Braves strike out an awful lot. Some of the most strikeouts in all of baseball, depending on what day you're looking at it, they don't really get outside of the top three. Someone else may have an awful day, but the Braves have been consistently striking out nine to ten times per game, and that simply is not going to get it done when you're talking about situational hitting, among other things. I mean, we live in this era where they tell us strikeouts don't matter, right? Strikeouts. Oh, but they do. <laughs> they 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 don't matter if when you're not striking out, you're being productive, and they're not. That's what's not happening, right? I mean, you can be, you can be strikeout heavy. But you can hit multi, you know, multi-run home runs. You can come through with runners in scoring position, and those are the things that just aren't happening with this club right now. It's a rash of solo home runs, and it's just an inability to make contact on top of all those strikeouts. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we have a lot more to talk about when it does come to the Braves lineup and the things that haven't been working right. The fortunate thing for the Braves on this road trip is they did win a series down in Miami. It's one that they needed to win against a club that was also struggling, but it came on the heels of a, a series against the Brewers that I thought was also winnable. Ian Anderson was on the wrong end of a one nothing loss, and the Braves in the finale of that series, when they really had a chance to cash in and grab a victory and get out of town in Milwaukee and a good start to that road trip, had a debilitating loss, I feel like, in extra innings. I guess the great thing was there was no hangover effect down in Miami as they were able to go down, handle business, win the first two games, and get themselves back coming home with a nice homestand sitting out in front of them with more opportunities against NLE's foes like the Phillies and the Marlins awaiting them Clubs that are under 500, clubs in a very similar boat to the Braves who are finding their way to get to some kind of level of consistency. Much more to get to here on From the Diamond as we continue our look at this week in Braves baseball. It's coming your way next here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is Grant McCauley, but also Corey McCartney here with me in the Kia Studios as we continue our look at this week in Braves baseball here on the show. And uh, we got to kind of pick up where we left off, which is not the most fun thing to talk about, especially when we're six, seven weeks into the season, Corey, and we're still talking about the struggles of the Braves offense. And their big offseason acquisition, there's really no two ways around it. The eyes were going to be on him 
one way or another. And, of course, I'm talking about Matt Olson, who got off to that scorching start for the Braves before falling into the last month, which has been anything but a scorching run for him. As you look at what has befallen Matt Olson after hitting basically, what, 450 over the first three weeks of the season, another 0 for 4 on Sunday, left four men on base as well, hitting 168 coming into the day. With two home runs in his past 28 games, he'd driven in 13 runs in those 28 games. Seven of them came in three different contests. So if you're talking about how have those been spread out, well, not really. I mean, beggars can't be choosers. I'm glad he's driven in some runs. But when you look at the opportunities in particular that Olsen has had in that two spot, getting all of those plate appearances, and it seems like when you are struggling, the ball finds you, the lineup spot comes up again and you just have to find a way to grind your way through it. I know that's what Brian Snitker's looking at because this guy is very talented. That's why you brought him in. He's been a very good hitter for a while out there in Oakland, but this has been one of the sore spots for the Braves lineup for a while now, hitting second, and that's Matt Olson. Yeah, and we know that one of the ways that Brian Snicker operates is he's a back of the baseball guy. Yep. You know, he'll always say that, you know, well, check out the back of his baseball card. Check out, I mean, that's it. You know, he says that all the time. And, and certainly when you look at the back, of Matt Olson's baseball card, you know, you see a multi-time All-Star, multi-time Gold Glove winner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he hit, has had a pair of doubles in the last three games. But you go, I mean, you mentioned some of here. If you go since April 26th, he's hitting 172 with a 634 OPS. On April 24th, that OPS was over a thousand. It went 0 for 4 again on Sunday, and you know, I hate to keep bringing this up, but he's one of the biggest culprits of it. Is that situational hitting that's really hurting this team? 286 with bases empty. 190 with men on, 200 with run, runners in scoring position. He's at 21% below league average with men on. Um, you know, certainly, you know, you mentioned the, the that spot in the order and how key that spot is. I mean, I think you know, you may need to start having this conversation uh, about whether you know one of the hotter bats in this lineup maybe needs to get an opportunity here because it's not just the the bat where Olsen's having problems. I mean. Even with the glove, I mean, I mentioned a multi-time Gold Glove winner, but he currently and there's certainly some. People are going to have their issues with defensive metrics when it comes to first baseman. But right now, these are the worst defensive metrics of his entire career. Yeah. So not only is he, you know, you say, okay, leave the bat. Don't take it out there in the field with you. Uh, he's doing that as well. well it's, it's easy just, for us to yeah, say that, well, right? Yeah, well, you know, that's, yeah. I, I tell the little leaguers that, so I'll just say that much. <laughs> right. You know, but certainly it's, it's, it's filtering into every aspect of his game right now. And I think you've got to find a way to get Matt Olson back on track. The doubles are great. I mean, he's tied for the league lead in doubles right now with 16. Uh, but they need him delivering runs, and they need him driving in runs, and you know I think that's that's the issue. I mean, he's he's one of the biggest culprits of this issue that we talked. It's at the heart of everything with the Braves right now, which is not getting it done with runners on base. And here's one of the other things that I look at as you start to you know, and, and we're getting now what 36, 37 games into the season to the point where you don't have to say, well, it's only a couple of weeks, a small sample yeah. size. We're not going to look at it anymore. You get to the quarter point of the season, which the Braves have basically checked in at at this point. Against right-hand pitchers this year, he's only got two home runs and four runs knocked in. Now, you're going to see way more righties than lefties. About two-thirds of the time, you're going to be seeing a righty over a lefty. One of the great things that Olsen did last year with Oakland was he batted 271 against righties. He batted 270 against lefties. He OPSed higher against left-handers by nearly 100 points and hit 22 of his 39 home runs against lefties. But this year, he's only hitting 204 with a 750 OPS against left-handers, so he's also struggling with what is traditionally the split that you look at and say, well, left-handed hitters have some trouble with left-handed pitching. That, you thought, was not going to be an issue for Olsen, but that's just one more little thing to, I guess, look at and say maybe he's not seen it as well this year. But, again, we can look through all these splits and try to make them all say something, and the numbers do tell us a number of different things, but all of them really add up to 
This is a guy that's not hitting up to his standards, and the Braves really need that to change. And he also is, again, not alone at that table. There are several other guys who have RSVP'd to a party that nobody wanted. So what do you do? I mean, do you certainly, I mean, obviously, Dansby Swanson's killing it right now. I mean, you, you go back He's to that. figured his stuff he out. He has. I go back to April 26th, which sort of feels like that November 5th, 1955 date there for the flux capacitor with the Braves, where everything seems to be, okay. like, kind of breaking out from. But, um you go back to that kind of statistical convergence there, and he only Acuna has, has been more productive within the Braves lineup since that date than Dansby Swanson has. So do you move Dansby up to the second spot and allow Matt, Matt Olson to slide down some? I mean, then you kind of get into the situation where are you putting Swanson out of a spot in which he's been comfortable and he's been producing? I mean, th- this is ultimately you know where you want Matt Olson to be, and Obviously, he's a guy who's done this and has a track record, but how long can you let track record carry the weight before you say, you know what, we got to make some changes here because it's just not happening. Now, again, what are the answers to this? You say, let's bring up one of the hot hitters, put him up toward the top of the order. Who's the hot hitter? I mean, is that Dansby Swanson? Do you hit him behind Ronald Acuna Jr. for a minute and just say, hey, we'd love to do this righty-lefty thing down the order, but... We can't really do that right now. You've also got Austin Riley struggling. I'll get to him in a moment. Marcelo Zuna has started to show some signs of being a guy that can not only hit for power, but also come up in some times and drive in some runs that are mildly important for a club that's struggling to score runs. But with Ozzy Albies, who we already talked about, also scuffling with Adam Duvall, a completely slow start for the season, who has at times hit well with runners on base, but hasn't really looked like the guy he was a year ago. Those are the things that I think we look at and say, there's got to be an answer here at some point. And you brought up the date for the flux capacitor. Uh, I feel like more so in a from a baseball standpoint, is this like when the Nationals set May 24th yeah. on, in their flux capacitor, in, in their DeLorean to, yeah, I guess, move through time and win the World Series in 2019? So much so that they commemorated it a year later. Maybe that's the kind of thing the Braves need is their own, hey, on this date, we were down at this level. And from that date on, we were able to play pretty well. It worked Fairly well for them a season ago. I believe on August 5th is when they started to go on their tear, and that took them on to, what, November the 2nd, which was a pretty great day in Braves history. But I don't know that you can expect that every time you get off to a slow start. No, and I, I'm almost wondering if we're going to hear about Dansby bringing Sage back into to Truist Park. You know, But certainly there's a, there's a sense of, and I, th- I think this is, it's to the club's credit and its detriment that they've done this, that they've come back, that they've been eight games down in a division and come back and won it and went to the World Series and won that. You you can't this this is not it's not a game plan right I mean no. not that they're trying no. to find themselves seven and a half games back of the Mets in, in the NL East but you find yourselves here again and unlike a year ago expecting that Alex Anthopoulos is going to go out and make some drastic changes to bring in a rash of guys who are all going to find their way into being productive hitters at the yeah. exact same time is probably not going to happen again so how do you take what has been the struggles of this team? That obviously, you know, you talk to Brian Snicker about it, and he'll say, "Well, I, I, I feel like these guys will get there eventually. They all have track records." But how do you get to the point where they, where you, where you get that to happen? Because you're not going to get, I don't think, those outside influences or that outside help that you had a year ago. Well, you're not going to get it in the middle to later portion of May, certainly. No. If you're going to expect any kind of, in, you know, bringing in any kind of outside talent, any kind of infusion of energy or production or whatever you want to call it. That's not coming until maybe June, probably July, when other teams have decided, all right, we can move into that seller's mode because right now it's just too early. I mean, yeah, there are some teams that have bad records, but do you know what it would cost to go try to pry away some of their better players if they're even willing to? Because it sends a certain message to the fans when you start selling your players off in trades in 
May. Unless it, you're the Reds owner and you say, where else are you going to go? In, in which case, you could market your team that yeah. way and you could suffer for that. But as far as the Braves are concerned and these offensive trends that you mentioned, because, again, it's not just poking at Matt Olson and saying, hey, new guy, you're not you know, living up to what the old guy was doing. It's more about, I feel like, the collective group. And, yeah, it's nice to have a guy like Brian Snitker who does have the patience and, and clearly has spent – decades and decades and decades around the game to see enough guys that are better than where they are at a certain time to work their way through that. But coming into this one, Austin Riley's last 15 games, he was batting 148 with a homer and four runs knocked in, 21 punch outs. He went 0 for 4 with two more strikeouts on Sunday. We talked about Olsen hitting sub 170 now over his last 29 games after an 0 for 4 on Sunday with just the two home runs and 30 strikeouts for him. And also Ozzy Albies, while the uh, the contact rate has improved, and that's sometimes been a knock against him and other players about not putting the ball in play. It hasn't necessarily generated good contact. And then you throw in at the bottom, if you needed this, you've got Travis Demerit, who was kind of a bright spot for you for a hot minute. Well, not as much anymore. He's now, after an 0-3 on Sunday, stuck in an 0-28 slump, lost track of the outs on a play that didn't necessarily help the Braves out on Sunday as well. I mean, it seems like for if you're talking about taking it back out into the field, maybe that's the point that you've gotten to there as well, Corey. I mean, look, with Demerit, I think it's it's almost like lightning in a bottle with him, right? I don't think right. anybody is anticipating that you're going to look back on the 22 season and be like, man, we really struck gold with bringing Travis Demerit back. You know, it didn't work in it didn't work in Detroit. You know, certainly you got him. You know, he 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 provided a spark at a time that you needed it. You know, I think you you accept it for what it is, but. With Austin Riley, I mean, it's just, it's really staggering. I mean, he slipped to 111 WRC plus. He was at 158 in April, so he was 58% above that 100 league threshold. He's in the low 60s here in May, went 0 for 4 with 2Ks on Sunday. He's hitting 196 against righties. And, you know, obviously there's been a lot of guys, you talk about hard hit rates and bad luck, and that's been permeated, that's permeated the game in the 2022 season. Yeah, all of Major League Baseball. Exactly. But his, he has a nearly 50-point difference between his batting average and his expected batting average. The, the BABIP right now is 267, so you think 300 being around league average for that. He's, he has had bad luck. Uh, but he's also just, you know, he's just been lost at times, especially of late. I mean, we, we looked at the career progression of him. When he came up, he was feasting on fastballs, right? And he comes out, and he can't hit the slider. And then the next year, he's figured out the breaking stuff, but he's struggling against the fastball. And then in 21, we kind of saw him put it all together. And he was doing that early in the season. He's now hitting 200 against fastballs this year. I mean, it's, he, he's again kind of slipped back into that issue. And I don't know. what I mean, he, he told me early in the year that everything felt like it did last year. Like, everything felt exactly like it did. He felt like he was in a good place. And started out strong, but man, I mean, this this last month plus for him has been it, it's been tough to watch. But yeah, really, it's the last like I'd say seven to ten days, especially because yeah. when they put him in the leadoff spot to close out the homestand, where Ronald Acuna Jr. was down dealing with that groin injury, that you kind of wondered when is he going to be back, and maybe we got to find somebody to be an answer for longer than five games. Thankfully, it wasn't. You know, he was finding his way on base in that Padre series at a pretty high rate. He went out on the road, and he did not bring a hit home from Milwaukee or from Miami. And again. You don't have a ton of options. I mean, you got Guillermo Heredia, but if you start to feel like, hey, it's time to option this guy down and try something else, Drew Waters is in AAA Gwinnett. If you're, he's on the 40-man. If you're ready for that to be something that you want to try out, you've also got Michael Harris lighting the world on fire in AA. I'd be surprised if he made the jump from Mississippi. Those stranger things have happened. I would think if he goes anywhere next, it's going to be Gwinnett because he had not played a lot of games above A-ball in his career thanks to the pandemic in 2020 wiping out the minor league season. 
that would be a guy who, to keep in mind, and maybe he's somebody that could provide a little bit of a spark for the Braves and a little bit more so of that top prospect pedigree that, that Harris brings in addition to being able to play center field, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world either because it would allow you to do some other things with Adam Duvall besides playing him in center field every single game. Those are all hypotheticals. This is you know the, the final 10 or so days or final week of the month of May, so I'm not sure you're ready to hit that button right now, but there is a line at some point, I guess, where if you wait too long, are you going to have the opportunity to, you know, are you going to have the hindsight where you look back and say, man, I wish we had done this sooner? We, we talk about sparks, you know, think, think about, you know, the kind of run that the Braves went through where it's like, okay, Matt, Mike Soroka is making his debut. Everybody gets hyped up for it. There right. comes Max Fried. Everybody's hyped up for right. Max Fried's debut. And you just kind of go through Acuna, Albee, Swanson, like this whole run. And obviously I'm getting them out of order here, but they went through a run where it was like, oh, man. A couple of three years where come. it was very exciting. Here they come. Yeah. And, and there, there's very few guys right now that you could have that thought of, okay, everyone's going to get really hyped up when this guy's making his debut. I think Harris and I think Drew Waters is there too. And I think if you're not getting the production from Demerit right now, Maybe it's time for Waters to get that opportunity. He's, he's only played in 14 games this year, but he's, got, he's still got an 859 OPS. And I think you think about being a dynamic bat and what he can provide defensively. I, I, it may be time for him to get this opportunity. I, mean, I think there, there are, again, there are, there are a few guys within this system that I think could really get people amped up and maybe even provide a, a spark within that team of, okay, we may, not, we may not be in the point of the season where you go out and, and try to find somebody outside in another organization, but certainly within our own ranks, this is a guy who's been sitting on the 40-man, and it, it may be time for Drew Waters to get that chance. Yeah, not a ton of extra base hits down in Gwinnett right now. A couple of home runs, and one of those came in his Gwinnett debut a couple of weeks ago. One double, knocked in five runs, scored seven more in 11 games. He's hitting over 300, not walking a ton, though. And the strikeout's going to be part of his game. That's just kind of, it, it is what it is. But if, if you get him hot and doing something with the contact, then you can come back around. Like you said earlier, the strikeouts don't matter as much because they're not keeping you from being able to really get something of value from him. With Travis Demerit right now, it just kind of seems like this one may have run its course at this time, and time may run out on that. We'll see what the Braves decide to do with that. We'll talk some more Braves a little bit later on here on From the Diamond. we got a lot of stories to get to around Major League Baseball, though, as we get ready to take you into what we call three up, three down, six of the biggest stories in Major League Baseball from the week that was. They come your way next on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Graham McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you here from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we shift our focus from the Braves who do come home with a 500 road trip. They do come home with a series win down in Miami, but they do, I feel, come home kind of feeling like there were some missed opportunities out there on the road as well. They got a long homestand coming up. We'll be talking about that as the show goes on, but we want to get into three up, three down, six of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball this week and some very big news, Corey. Up in Baltimore, where the Orioles called up mega prospect Adley Rutschman. Times have been pretty challenging for this club, but getting a look at a big piece of their future gives Orioles fans, I think, a little something to come to the park and enjoy in which you know is a season that they may not have as many of those times if you're the Baltimore Orioles. I mean, if you're an Orioles fan, I mean, this has to feel like finally a sign of something positive, right? I mean, this has been going on for five years, and Rutschman comes in, you know, hits a triple in his first game, you know, obviously, yeah, he also uh, you know comes up with a hit today. Twenty-four year old, you know, former number one pick. 
you know, the, the comps that you hear are insane. The best switch hitting, you know, catcher since Ted Simmons. You know, people talk about him, you know, potentially having, you know, a career that we're going to look at as one of the, the greats for a catcher. And I've him <laughs> a game, and he's not even done with game two yet, but two, right. game, two games into his career, I don't think I'm ready to, to put him in Johnny Bench category yet. But certainly for a team that has gone through a lot of hurt, uh, you know, that fan base has been, you know, angling for Rutschman to get there. And, and yeah, I thought it was really cool when he when he stepped in behind the play for the first time and he kind of took that moment and he looked all around him at the three decks at Camden and, you know, kind of just savored it for that moment. I mean, obviously, you know, he's been waiting for this. The fan base is waiting for it. And I just think it just felt like, you know, this, this just feels big for a franchise that's been hurting for a long time. And, you know, what's crazy about Camden Yards is it's, Oddly enough, one of the 10 older ballparks, I believe, in all of baseball now. But when it came along in, I, I think, 92, 93, it was – then it was looked at as a state of the art. And really, I feel like it it, it started to uh, invite other clubs to think about, oh, what if we had a park that looked that good? Because yeah. it's a great-looking, a picturesque ballpark. And the fans there, I think, deserve a bit of a better product than they've seen. One of the things that comes with losing, though, is potential of getting the number one overall pick, which is what Rutschman was back in 2019. He was picked just ahead of Bobby Witt Jr., uh, Andrew Vaughn was the number three pick in that. I did not remember that whatsoever. You look at somebody who's really thriving from that draft and from that first round is Alec Manoa, who wow. is really, I think, leading the yeah. Blue Jays staff or one of their top starters along with Kevin Gossman, uh, quite obviously. But for Rushman, the number one pick in 2019, and as is usually the case, if you're the number one pick, no matter how long it takes, you're going to make it to the big leagues with very, very few exceptions. Now, let's keep it in the area for this next one because Aaron Judge made a ruling in a case of the disappearing home run, and the motion was filed against Camden Yards, and it included a key witness, Trey Mancini of the Orioles. Now, I'm going to unpack all of this without any more legal puns. Judge hit a line drive to left field that stayed in the park because the O's have pushed their fences back 30 feet, and they've also raised the walls, and this is in response to the 155 home runs that Orioles pitchers served up last year in their 81 home games, which is a lot to think about. Uh, Judge's 399-foot blast would have been out of all 29 other major league parks, and he made his feelings known afterwards by calling Camden Yards' new left field dimensions a video game create-a-park. Aaron Boone threw in his two cents and said that Judge would have had three homers, but the Bilgerone ballpark cost him. It seems like just last week we were talking about someone complaining <laughs> about the Yankee Stadium's dimension. Now you've got the Yankees complaining about the dimensions of another ballpark, and baseball is nothing if not cyclical, is it? It's it's wild, right? I mean, we just it's, it's. I mean, I can't wait for next week when we talk about you know the dimensions of Fenway and just how the the monsters is stealing all these home runs. But it, it's a reality in Camden. I mean, through 19 games there, only four hitters have been able to hit it over that wall: uh, Ryan Mountcastle, Anthony Santander, and Byron Buxton. At the same time last year, there were 18 homers to left field, which is where that uh, raised. So this has been it's a dramatic shift yeah. in what guys have been able to do out there. But it, it's just funny to me that you know. Here you had, you know, a week ago where you got the Rangers doing the exact same thing, complaining about ballpark dimensions, and here's an, yeah, obviously it's not playing to the Orioles' favor either. I mean, no. we, again, they they're responsible for for three of the the four home runs that have come. Austin Hayes, by the way, is the other one, the, the left fielder who, you know, he said that he saw it first on Twitter, and he said as a hitter, as a right-handed hitter that likes to pull the ball, he didn't want to hear it. As a defender, now he has more room to cover in the field and the outfield because of it. Yeah. So it seems like nobody involved with this likes it at all. Uh, I would be surprised if this thing's going to be like this for a long period of time. Again. Yeah, I would also be surprised. And let's throw in, I, I mentioned Trey Mancini. What does he have to do with this? He, of course, of the Baltimore Orioles, says no hitters like it, myself included. So he heard about it after the game. Again, a 399-foot poke in most fields to left field should be more than enough to get out of the ballpark, but not quite enough 
in Camden Yards at this time. Will they change these dimensions again? Time will tell, but uh, if I'm just shake my Magic 8 ball right now, say sources say yes, yes, but we'll see. A-starter Max Scherzer landed on the injured list and could miss two months for the Mets, and if you couple that with the absence of Jacob deGrom all season thus far and the loss of Tyler McGill here lately, all of a sudden New York has a bit of an arm shortage in their rotation now. The first-place Mets have marched out to a big lead in the NL East, but if this is the kind of thing that they're dealing with, it could wear them down over time because, again, Scherzer's going to be on the shelf for a while. It, they feel vulnerable now, right? I right. Mean, I think that's the, that, and they didn't feel like that a couple weeks ago. You know, certainly Degrom. It just felt like, man, when this team gets Degrom back, they're going to be unbeatable. And now you've got Scherzer out up again up to eight weeks. Degrom had a follow-up MRI, and it, it, while it's showing healing, he there's still no timetable on his return. The thought was that he'd need three to five rehab starts before he'd make his debut for the Mets. So then you've got Chris Bassett, Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, and then it dips down to Trevor Williams and David Peterson picking up those last two spots. Uh, the Mets are reportedly scouting Frankie Montas of the A's and the Reds' Tyler Malley. So they, you know, while you mentioned earlier in the show, yeah, there's not a lot of teams that are going to be, you know, in that seller mode right now. I mean, I think the A's and the Reds are going to be willing to deal anybody if the price is right right now. And I think the Mets, and we know how willing they are to go out and push an agenda in terms of making their club better. Uh, I would anticipate they're going to be making an upgrade in that back end of that rotation. And then when they finally do get those two guys back, it's just a matter of, okay, they've got a seven and a half game lead on the Braves right now. How much of a cushion have they built themselves where that offense can keep them afloat for them to wait for those two big arms to get back? Yeah, it's a big question that they're going to have to ask is how can we address this? At this time, we were talking about the Braves for totally different reasons, having trouble maybe getting somebody in to help them out in the lineup if you're starting to think about making trades. It's a little too early to do that. They're extremely fortunate. They went out and traded for Chris Bassett over the offseason. They didn't extend him, or, mm-hmm. I, I believe, or uh, get through their arbitration case with him, I should say. So he's in there and is one of the answers that you have in rotation. But there have a few more questions than I think they anticipated, particularly in a very expensive one in Scherzer, who I, I, I caught his comments after this injury. He knew something was wrong. He knew he'd never felt that before. And, in course, of course, oblique injuries, as we know, this is not something where we see guys come back very quickly because it's the kind of thing that if you do try to come back too quick, you re-aggravate it, and then you have to start all over from scratch. It's one of those time is the thing that heals this, and in the middle of a baseball season, that time is going to tick slowly, slowly, slowly for Max Scherzer and the Mets. They're going to feel every second of it. And a guy that's as intense as his preparation as Max Scherzer is, I think this is going to be something you're going to be watching. Even when he does come back, you know, think about those bullpen sessions where he's mm-hmm. all you know geared up in his uniform and his intent. Think about, the, we, we saw him exit the postseason, my arm's dead. And he just was like, that's not Max Scherzer. No. Now you watch him tell them, hey, something's wrong here. This, this, these two last glimpses that we've had of Scherzer pulling himself out of games just feel like, man, something's not right. I mean, obviously he's on the, he's on the you know, this, we're, we're on the downturn of the Max Scherzer ride yeah. here. But, uh, you know, certainly the Mets, in, in signing him to that deal they signed him to, they were not anticipating they were going to get that happening this early into that contract. No, they were hope, hoping to have a healthy Jacob deGrom back, and they were certainly looking to have somebody to be the 1B to the, you know, the, just a – a rotation that was completely different than what they have had in recent years by having two all-star caliber, potentially future Hall of Famers, I think in the case of both of these guys, in rotation. But that has not really worked out for the Mets so far this year. But they're in first place, so I don't think anybody's going to cry for them anytime soon. Now let's go over to the White Sox and Yankees, who had a benches-clearing incident over the weekend where White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson and Yankees third baseman Josh Donaldson got into another dust-up. This is their second one of the season. Apparently, 
This one got pretty ugly, according to the postgame comments from the Chicago side, where manager Tony La Russa said that Donaldson made a racially charged remark to Anderson, which sparked the benches clearing, and he revealed, uh, Anderson did, that Donaldson had referred to him as Jackie, referring to Jackie Robinson. Now, Donaldson did apologize after the game, and it's worth noting this reference comes from an interview that Anderson gave to Sports Illustrated a few years back in which he referenced himself as something of a current-day Jackie Robinson in wanting to change the game and with, as we've well noted, African-American participation in baseball being at its all-time low in the recent years and decades, that's something that clearly is a focus of Tim Anderson. And there's obvious other contextual issues and some bad optics here. There's no two ways around that. You throw in the hot tempers and the fact that attempted jokes between rivals typically don't go over well anyway. You've got all the elements of a combustible situation between these two guys. Without question. And, I, you know, going back to that article, Anderson said he wanted to try to, to, to break the have fun barrier in baseball because certainly he brings that energy to it sure. as well. And I mean, that, that's all the stuff that, that Tim Anderson stands for. But you obviously have a track record here with Donaldson and the White Sox. You think back to, you know, Lucas Giolito and him having some postgame words and, you know, the, the two meeting outside in the parking lot afterwards because Giolito, you know, didn't like what Donaldson said and said, come say it to my face. So he went out there and said it to his face. And then you had some stuff earlier this season where there was a play at the, you know, third and it, it, there was a dust up between uh, Anderson and Donaldson. Then I will say, whether you want to listen to Josh Donaldson's explanation and say he was trying to diffuse the situation with humor, I feel like the guy knew exactly what he was doing. Right. And the fact that you you say these comments, and whether or not you had an inside joke, and he, he actually said he started kind of calling him Jackie back in 2019 when he was playing for the Braves, which is when that article came out. They had a late-season se- late, uh, series that year against mm-hmm. the White Sox. It's not the time for it. If no. you want to get get with him in the off season and kind of you know work your way back, the tensions are already high between you and this club, and especially within the last month of things that have already happened. I would anticipate there's going to be some kind of a suspension levy down to Josh Donaldson on this, and just you know take it, move on, because you know there, there there's no way to paint a picture here in which you end up looking like the good guy. No, and additionally, the bad optics of this thing clearly are baked into this, and you're not going to be able to remove that by trying to explain it away in your post game comments. But just from my my experience in life, you have inside jokes with friends, typically. You don't have inside jokes <laughs> with people who just probably don't like you. So uh, be that as it may, just an unfortunate situation between those two and one that we may not have heard the last of when it comes to what Major League Baseball finds in its investigation. Now let's switch gears altogether. Mike Trout has spent a decade in the big leagues with the Angels. He's been putting his name on a list of all-time greats the entire time. Over the weekend, he scored his 1,000th run. That puts him in a very small and elite club as Trout's just a third player with 1,000 runs scored, 300 homers, 200 steals by his age 30 season, joining Willie Mays and Alex Rodriguez. This kind of thing is hardly surprising considering that Trout has been passing many Hall of Famers in wins above replacement in recent years, and it would appear that he's going to be joining more clubs like this and climbing up that list of the all-time greats the longer and longer he plays. This is in fact, the best player in baseball, the best player we've seen for a while. I mean, as fun as it's been to watch Miguel Cabrera the last you know month plus, kind of every little thing with him as he just passed this guy on the home run list. He just passed this guy on the doubles list and, and hits list and on and on. What we're going to be able to, to take in with Mike Trout over these next few years is just going to be a completely different level. That run that you talked about of him having 1,000 runs, 300 homers, he's, his, he's the fifth fastest to 1,000 runs in the, in the last 60 years. It took him 13, 25 games. 
and obviously it would have went faster, you know, had he, we've talked about years time, had he not been injured. The only ones faster were Ricky Henderson, Alex Rodriguez, Kenny Lofton, and Pujols. And he's already, I mean, you talked about the names he's, he's checking off here on the climb up the war list. He's already top 40 in career war. He's two spots ahead of Ken Griffey Jr. And this season, he's probably going to get past Brooks Robinson, Pete Rose, Jeff Bagwell, and Roberto Clemente. And the next season, he's closing in on Joe DiMaggio. I mean, this is unbelievable territory that we're talking about this guy. And man, I hope he winds up in the postseason this year because baseball needs this guy to have that postseason resume befitting what he's already accomplished. It would be nice to see you brought up King Griffey Jr. It seemed like he had some great postseason moments early on, but he never really got to play on the biggest stage, win that World Series. Yep. I'm not saying that Trout's going to win the World Series this year, but it sure would be nice to be invited to the dance, as they say, and get yourself a spot in that tournament. You were looking at the Fangraphs war list, I assume. Yep. I'm looking at the baseball reference war list. They're not that very far off. Joe DiMaggio is next on that hit list. King Griffey Jr. is a little bit higher up. Probably going to take a while to get to Chipper Jones and George Brett, but then you're going to be cracking inside the top 25 all-time and wins above replacement, and you're basically 30 years old. You've got potentially another decade if you can stay healthy. Now, meanwhile, uh, let's talk about the Mariners for a moment who don't have King Griffey Jr. in their outfield, and that's one of the many reasons Mariners fans can be disappointed because Seattle's outfield has been a disaster this year thanks to injuries and underperformance. They just inked Justin Upton, who was cut loose by the Angels earlier this year. They owe him around the league minimum. Uh, and while in L.A., they're on the hook for the majority of his $28 million in salary. But I was looking at this not only from a what's this mean for the Mariners, which is I don't think much, but can you believe it's been almost a decade since the Braves acquired Justin Upton from the Arizona Diamondbacks? Wow. And I still remember sitting in the clubhouse on spring training that first days when him and BJ had arrived and they were sick and tired of answering questions about whether they had bunk beds, you know, whether they, you know, all this nonsense about the brothers playing. They, they were as tired of it after two or three days of spring training as I think the rest of us were of hearing different reporters come in and asking those same questions. But um, that Seattle outfield is an absolute disaster. Mitch Hanniger, Kyle Lewis are out. Jared Kellenick's been demoted. Uh, 21st in way to run create a plus, 19th in war, 23rd in OPS. But he's only going to get a league minimum. So just see what you can get with this guy. Uh, he, you know, he's years removed from being anything. You know, he hasn't had at league average since 2018. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we'll see if he can provide anything. But um, they're not they're not taking much of a gamble on him. No, and this is the kind of chance you take when you really don't have any chances left. You mentioned Kelnick's in the minor leagues. Kyle Lewis, I believe, is expected to be activated from the injured yep. list on Monday. So we'll see if that gives the Mariners perhaps a little bit more of an infusion of some younger talent that they've been banking on to be a big part of their present and their future as well. So that'll wrap things up on our three up and three down, six of the biggest stories across Major League Baseball for the week that was. When we come back, we'll go around the big leagues and break down the National League and American League Division battles. That's coming your way right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond, Hour 2 here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney. We appreciate you making us part of your Sunday evening. And, of course, if you like what you're hearing on the show, we invite you to catch it wherever you get your podcast. You can subscribe. Just search for From the Diamond. But right now, it's time to take a look at what else has been happening around the world of baseball this week as we really hone in on what's going on in the divisional races. And we'll start in the National League East. That's where the Braves play their baseball. That's where we've watched the most and uh, keep tabs, of course. And the tabs would be telling us that the New York Mets 
are still the first-place club in this division as they uh, come into Sunday, 12 games over 500. Everyone else in the division under 500 for a variety of reasons. I feel like I've used that phrase <laughs> an awful lot this year as I've talked about the Braves' struggles, but also when you look at the struggles of other teams, everybody's kind of going through their own stuff in this division, it feels like. Even the Mets now, who are dealing with the Max Scherzer injury that you attack on top of the Jacob deGrom injury, the, the fact that they got out to this hot start without DeGrom, that says an awful lot. Now, what will they do six to eight weeks minus Scherzer and still not knowing when they're going to get DeGrom back? Corey, I think that's a pretty big question or two that the Mets need to answer. And some of these other clubs, particularly the Braves, who are in the middle of this streak of playing under 500 clubs for the better part of a month, need to start taking advantage of a team that might start to show signs of being mortal. They have to feel like there's an opening now. And if you look at this Mets offense, they're top five in war, fifth in run scored, fifth in way to run create a plus. But they're 24th in hard hit rate and second on batting average in play. There, there's some big weapons in the offense, but I think it's a, it's a profile that talks to an offense that ultimately is going to have things kind of catch up with them a little yeah. bit because Brandon Nimmo has a 339 BABIP, Jeff McNeil 341, Mark Canna 346, Pete Alonzo 316, Starling Marte 310. Now, the 310 and 316, maybe you can stay around those rates, but yeah. some of those more elevated ones, those are going to fall back to earth. Can the pitching staff do enough while they have DeGrom and Scherzer, until DeGrom makes his debut, and as long as Scherzer's out, to maintain that lead. The best thing the Mets have going for them is they have a cushion because they're going to have yes. to get this figured out. Because I'm telling you, those, those offensive rates that they have, that is not going to hold this. They, they don't have four Chris Johnsons who set a Braves <laughs> BABIP record in that one season and got himself a contract. They don't have four of those guys on this team. This offense is going to, it's going to, to fall a little bit back down to the, to the mean, and, and do they have enough pitching to back up when that happens. Now, and for those of us who are listening and wondering, well, what is batting average on balls in play? That is the player's average when you take uh, balls like, or excuse me, plays like home runs and strikeouts out of it, and simply when he puts the ball in play, what is he hitting? And when you get well up over 300, particularly around the 350 mark, that would say that you're probably a little bit more lucky. But again, home runs are not part of that. That's worth putting Correct. pointing out. It is a hit, but it's out of play because it's over the wall. I guess inside the park, home runs would be in there. I don't know. I've never really looked into that. Yeah, I mean, three hundreds around league average, though. Yeah. If you're if you're looking to kind of we'll, have, that, we'll get our that statisticians yeah. on the inside the park homer that's thing. Right. I've never thought about that until right now, and that's a terrible thing to well, bring up on the play. air. It is a ball in play. <laughs> you know, it is. so I guess it does count. So maybe that uh, that'll end the uh, the debate there. But I wanted to give some context to that as to why is that an important yeah. stat, and I feel like it is one of those you just need to look at it alongside someone's batting average to say. Is this a sustainable level of production from this player? And you brought up Chris Johnson, not to pick on him, but his 2013 season, if you are a back-of-the-baseball card person, looks pretty good. If you look beyond that as to can he continue to do this year over year, the answer to that was no, and I don't think there are too many players that consistently outperform that year over year, and it doesn't catch up with them at some point. So when you're talking about a whole team that's dealing with that kind of thing, it's worth noting that they're not necessarily scalding the ball at the same kind of hard hit rate that I feel like the Braves, among other teams, are that you would hope that it, the inverse would be true, that ultimately you would start to get more luck with the balls that you're putting in play. The Braves are also plagued by strikeouts at times as well, so that does create an issue for Atlanta with putting the ball in play at a higher rate. 
Uh, nonetheless, the Braves and the Marlins are right there neck and neck behind the New York Mets in this division. The Phillies also right there. So it's really three teams all clumped up there. And then you've got the Washington Nationals, who 15 games under 500 coming into Sunday. They're a non-factor in this. And I was even reading some comments from Juan Soto not long ago about how he just doesn't feel like he's himself weird, either. And he's right? trying to figure it out. And yeah. this is a guy that I don't know that I'd seen him struggle for more than maybe an at-bat or two. And it just felt like he's always got a plan. And he's one of the most talented hitters in baseball is he ever going to slump? And I guess the answer to that is, hey, 2022 is here for you, and it brought a new baseball. It's wild, right? I mean, since May 14th, that team, they've been outscored 37-9. to In that stretch, he's 2-for-20 with four wide. It's one of the worst stretches that he's had in the last three years. And, you know, it was over, he went over three on Saturday. That's when he made those comments that he's been working on his swing, trying to figure things out. That two through four of Soto, uh, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell has been 15th in OPS that month, this month. I, we just expected more from that mm-hmm. crew. And I, I think as we look down the line of guys who will be moved, I still think Nelson Cruz and Josh Bell are going to be wearing different uniforms by the end of the season. I can't believe we were having conversations earlier this week about whether Juan Soto was going to be traded because that is absolutely not going to happen. I don't know why in the world the Nationals would even consider that as an option, either. and you know that's not an operating procedure on how you build a club, uh, but uh, certainly things are not good for Juan Soto right now. No, I've never seen him at, at this point in the season or any season hitting below 250, much less I mean below 300, to be honest with you, the first couple of years. But you knew he's a guy that's going to on base at a 400 clip. He's going to slug at a 500 clip, and you're going to look at what he's doing and say, this guy's a net positive all the time. Does he ever slump? But the answers thus far in 2022 have been a little bit harder to find even for him. He's got eight home runs this year. He's knocked in 11 runs. That's how bad the Nationals offense has been this year. Not a lot of guys on base, not a lot of guys to knock in, and that's been something Juan Soto's had to deal with. As we look at the National League Central, we just got to look at the Brewers not once but twice here over the last 10 days uh, for the Atlanta Braves or over the last couple of weeks, I guess. Uh, 12 games over 500 as they battle the Nationals on Sunday. This is a team that really only has one challenger, and that's going to be the St. Louis Cardinals, a club that's getting MVP caliber play from Paul Goldschmidt, their first baseman. But like so many other clubs, they're trying to figure out offensively how to get some pieces going. And I don't think anybody for the Cardinals has struggled worse than Tyler O'Neill. He was a guy I think that was getting MVP votes last year yeah. that has looked absolutely lost in 2022. The Brewers are off to the best 40-game start in team history. They're projected at 94 wins right now. And I think when you look at in terms of offseason pickups, Hunter Renfro has been absolutely huge for this team. 127 way to run create a plus, second to Rowdy Telez on that team. He's homered nine times. That deal with the Red Sox, where they sent Jackie Bradley Jr. and two infield prospects Boston way. I mean, this has absolutely been won on every level by Milwaukee. Bradley yeah. has is hitting 40% below league average again. 100 way to run create a plus is a league average player, and he's 40% below that. Just hit his first homer of the season. So the Brewers are in a good place right now, and Hunter Renfro is a big reason why. Who knew that you'd be talking about, hey, the Brewers are really hitting it this year, and you know who's leading the way? Hunter Renfro and Rowdy Telez of all the people. And keeping in mind, like Renfro, a cast off of the Red Sox, as they were much happier to bring Jackie Bradley Jr. back home, who is a nice defensive outfielder but has struggled throughout his career to be a consistent offensive threat. And then Rowdy Telez comes from the Toronto system where they feel like they had a lot of answers at positions and didn't need him as either a DH or a first baseman. He ended up in Milwaukee. So good clubs make these kinds of moves mm-hmm. where you go and find the, the parts that other teams aren't necessarily utilizing or don't see a future with, or you feel like you can get something from, and you bring them into your team and you find a way to get them out there and get them playing. I mean, this worked for the Braves last year at the trade deadline yep. in particular. That's a really stark example. You can't expect it every year. But good clubs make those kinds of moves. The Brewers, they're a good club. They have made their own moves as well. 
Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates got absolutely demolished on Sunday by the St. Louis Cardinals. I thought the amusing things in there were Albert Pujols didn't start. He hit two home runs. Paul Goldschmidt did not play in the game. And you know who closed it out for the Cardinals? Yadier Molina. Oh, wow. He gave up the four runs to the uh, Pittsburgh crew. So but they've, used, they've used Pujols and Molina as pitchers in the last They certainly week. have. Wow. So a couple of uh, future Hall of Famers, but not for their work on the mound. <laughs> <laughs> no two ways about that. Cubs and the Reds round out the standings in the NL Central. Both of those clubs well under 500 on the season. Meanwhile, if you look out west, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're on a tear. That shouldn't really be that surprising. They're taking on the Phillies to close out their weekend, but brought a seven-game winning streak into Sunday. The Padres have not really been giving a lot of ground. Both of these clubs, the Dodgers and the Padres, have won seven out of ten. Three in a row for San Diego as they battle the San Francisco Giants on Sunday afternoon as well. But a game-and-a-half lead now belongs to the Dodgers. We were sitting here a week ago saying, hey, look what the Padres did. Not only did they get out of Atlanta with a victory, which was not a whole bunch of fun for the Braves, but it allowed them to push past a Dodgers club that was kind of treading water or scuffling just a little bit. But the Dodgers can turn this on. This is the club that they are. Freddie Freeman has fit in very nicely out there in L.A., but that is a cast of many that makes that club so great. So a couple things. I think with the the Padres, they finally seem equipped that they're going to make a run at the at the Giants and the Dodgers. They've got Blake Snell back, McKenzie, you know, Mike Clevenger's back. Yep. They've got Mackenzie Gore kind of riding this wave where he's going to be getting some stars going back and forth in the bullpen. Manny Machado is the game's uh, Fangraph war leader right now. He's on pace for a, his first six-war season since that heyday in Baltimore. So I think you look at the Padres, and they look like they're finally equipped to make that run. But the Dodgers, I mean, Clayton Kershaw, that return is not imminent. He just had a bullpen session shut down. He felt some discomfort. Uh, it was scrapped. He felt pain playing catch. Andrew Haney threw a bullpen session, but he's not you know, on the way back yet. The, that bullpen took a hit with Tommy Kale going on the I.L. They even brought back Pedro Baez. They're trying to find an answer there. Um, you know, we talked about Matt Olson's struggles earlier, and you know, I know it's kind of he who should not be named territory, but Freddie Freeman is absolutely raking. 152 way to run creative plus in April, May. It's his best start since 2018, and he's done it with the fewest strikeouts of his career through this point in the season. So, I mean, the Dodgers are just very good at baseball, but the Padres are going to make it interesting. Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm surprised that Freddie Freeman is doing big things for a club because I watched it for a decade. Yeah. I understand how that whole thing works, but unfortunately for the Braves, they can't lean on his hot start this year. They've got their own problems. Meanwhile, for the Dodgers, as this whole situation played out, they were able to bring another player that just fits into the dynamic of what they've been building big picture out there for a long time. It's to get proven hitters and pitchers and then take all of the other pieces that they feel like they can get more out of and maximize that other clubs may have given up on or not see something in. Talk about those good moves that are made. It's not all about going out and signing somebody to a six- or seven-year contract. It's about making smart trades. It's about player development. The Dodgers do that extremely well, and we've all seen it and heard it for a while. This has been the Braves' biggest rival, and this has been the National League's most successful club year over year for a while. So it's not altogether surprising to see them putting together a win streak and climbing back up to the top of that division where one would imagine they're going to be hard to knock off in that NL West Game of Thrones that's happening Mm -hmm. out there. And if the Giants can get more involved in it and it's a three-team race, I'm not sure that the Diamondbacks or the Rockies really have the steam to stay in it for a while, but looking out there and seeing all those clubs at or around or above 500 for a while at different times this season was really not something I expected. No, and the Diamondbacks, I mean, they, they had that six-game losing streak. They kind of righted the ship against the Cubs. They won that series. 
Um, they've come back to earth, though, I think, in this division. They're, and they've got the Dodgers, who they're 2-5 and five against looming. Uh, the Rockies, you know, they were a game and a half back on May 1st. They're now eight games back with nine losses in the last 12 games. Uh, they did get Chris Bryant back from the 10-day IL. The Giants... Yeah, he was out for about three weeks. He was, he? yeah. And the, the Giants, they, it seems like they haven't been playing well since Gabe Kapler decided to, to have this deep thought realm where asking if you have a beard, do you have a mustache? And he kind of took this deep thought out to people because they're all growing mustaches and he was saying well I've got a beard so I should be good and they said no a beard's not a mustache if you have a beard you don't have a mustache and he says well if you have a beard you do have a mustache so as two bearded guys I think we would both agree that if you do not you have the beard yeah as long as I don't have to answer whether a hot dog's a sandwich (laughs) I'll be very very happy but no that's not the kind of thing I want to spend a whole lot of time thinking about but I did want to circle back to the Padres one more time because you know, their best starting pitcher this year has been Joe Musgrove. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of surprising when you're talking about a team that does have a Mike Clevenger who's coming off of injury. You bring up a top prospect like Mackenzie Gore. You've also got this guy, Hugh Darvish, uh, who has been good this year, but not Hugh Darvish dominant. Only 37 punch outs for him this year in 46 innings. That's down markedly from his recent strikeouts per nine. I don't know if that's cause for alarm or if it's just he's pitching a little bit different this year. And he's four and one in his eight starts, an ERA below four, but not necessarily the U Darvish level of production maybe the Padres had expected at this point. No, and with Musgrove, they've won each of his first eight starts. It's the second longest streak in club history. So they're they you know they're they're still finding a way to get it done with him on the mound. And I think with with Darvish, you know, you know how effective he can be. I mean, I don't think you. you I, I I would imagine he 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 kind of goes through those runs. Like remember when he was when he was with the Cubs and there was talk about. Oh, is he tipping pitches? Yep. You know, in the postseason, I, I think long term, you don't have any any concerns about if you Darvish is going to find a way to put together uh, an All Star a year ago. But he has never struck out less than ten batters per nine in his uh, major league career. Ten point eight last year, ten point nine in his career, but seven point two this year. I just saw that and thought that's very un you Darvish mm-hmm. because typically when he's out there, you're seeing strikeouts pile up. But uh, the Padres are winning more than they're losing, and you Darvish has been contributing to that, so maybe as the weather heats up, he'll find himself in a groove and get back to the kind of performances that you're used to seeing. Uh, big picture, though, it is the Mets and on top in the East, and it's the Brewers on top in the Central, and the Dodgers have taken back over in the West, just ahead of the Padres there, as that takes a look at what's going on in the National League. We'll switch our focus to the American League, as From the Diamond continues right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. This is From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios here in Midtown as we continue our look around the big leagues with a peek at what's happening in the American League. In fact, if we like what we see, we might stay here a while. How about a whole segment's worth, Corey? And let's start in the American League East where the New York Yankees have baseball's best record. They are 29-10 and 10 as they battle the White Sox on Sunday. That's nearly a 750 winning percentage if you're scoring at home, if you're into that sort of thing. I looked at the standings earlier today getting ready for the show, and I noticed that the Tampa Bay Rays have a record good enough to be tied or lead um, the American League Central at the very least. They wouldn't have the lead out in the West, but if you look at this year over year, it always seems to be the case where the second-place club in the American League East can be playing some great baseball, good enough to lead other divisional races, but 
Uh, you're in the American League East, so get used to it. If You're going to have to pack a lunch, and you're going to have to keep working if you want to topple the top team. And it's not the same team every single year, though. This one from New York, they seem to be in the mix. I would imagine if you were the owners of the AL East teams and the NL West teams, you would be like, why don't we just, you know, just have all the teams in one just one division? Let's just all be the NL, and then the, you know, we'll just take the top teams and just think about expanded playoffs. Maybe I mean, this is the kind of think tank that you're looking at. Yeah, Uh, I mean, the Rays though, uh, a couple blows to this team in the last week. They've put Manuel Margot and Brandon Lowe on the IL. There's no no timetable on Margot's return. Lowe's on the 10 day aisle with the lower back issue. He's going to undergo some further testings. Margot was killing it. He was hitting uh, 78% above league average. Lowe was not replicating last year when he hit 39 bombs, but still 114 WRC plus. So that's two of the Rays most productive bats missing, including their number one. And you mentioned the Yankees and that start they're off to man. Nestor Cortez is absolutely positioning himself as a Cy Young contender minus 0.1 run differential between his expected ERA and his actual ERA of 1.80. That is the lowest of any starter with a sub 2.0 ERA. So as much as we talk about, you know, BABIP and, you know, expected rates and what's reality, what you're seeing is what is what you should be expecting from Nestor Cortez. This guy has been absolutely lights out. Uh, we talk here in Atlanta about Kyle Wright being a great story, but Cortez has made eight starts in his as uh, Fangraph Wars already closing in on his 21, 20, uh, 2021 total. So uh, absolutely remarkable start from him. Now, it, not only is it an interesting story for Nestor Cortez, but we talked about Kyle Wright. When's he going to get a chance to stay in the big leagues? Well, Cortez is a guy that's bounced between multiple organizations at a pretty young age as well. He was drafted by the Yankees in the 36th round of the 2013 draft. So we're sitting here nine years later, basically, talking about him really coming on in their rotation. He got Rule 5 by the Orioles in 2017. He got returned to the New York Yankees from the Orioles as a Rule 5 pick because they didn't want to carry him all year, and that's the rules. Then he got traded by the Yankees to the Mariners for future considerations, hit free agency, re-signed with the Yankees in January of last year. Was a revelation for him on their staff a season ago, which clearly led to a bigger opportunity this year. And now this kid's just off to the races at 27 years old. At least this is age 27 season. Sub-2 ERA. He's punched out 56 guys in 45 innings, only walked 11, only allowed four home runs. He's hard to hit. He's not putting guys on base, and he's missing a lot of bats. That sounds like success in 2022, and Nestor Cortez is leading this Yankees staff. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been fascinating stuff out of him, and and certainly you know I mentioned you know th- those expected rates. I think especially early in the season like this, you look at a guy and try to figure out you know okay is he is he are the numbers I'm seeing you know is that is that stuff that's ultimately going to average itself out, and we're going to look back in a couple of weeks and say mm-hmm. no, nah, this isn't this isn't what we really should be having from him, but um, it is absolutely what uh, Cortez uh, should be uh, providing them. So he's been, he's been fascinating story so far without question. Yeah, it's a good pitching staff with a sub three ERA, and we've talked about the proclivity for hitting home runs, and Aaron Judge is pretty high up on that list. He's got 14 bombs this year. We talked about him missing a 15th thanks to Camden Yards, but he'll get there, I'm sure. You've also got Giancarlo Stanton hitting some pretty serious long balls as well. He's got 11 in 36 games, and like I said a week ago, having these guys healthy were some big question marks for the New York Yankees. Let's switch our uh, focus down a little bit in the standings there. Toronto Blue Jays have climbed up above 500, where they have uh, won five of their last ten uh, back-to-back games heading into Sunday, so that helps them in that regard to stay at, around, or above 500, which is where it all starts, I guess. If you want to do some extended winning, you don't want to fall below that line and stay below it for too long, particularly in this race where the Yankees and the Rays have both shown that they're going to be tough to track down. 
In Boston, meanwhile, where they'd won four in a row, the Red Sox had heading into Sunday. How about Trevor Story? Yeah. He may have been pretty bad for the first five or so weeks, but he's made up for it in the last week or so by hitting home runs like he's playing in Coors Field. And the the best one of all, I think, was the one that was caught above the Green Monster by former Red Sox great and former Braves great, <laughs> I Johnny Gomes. Yeah, so uh, back to the Blue Jays real quick. Bo, Bo Bichette, just like Trevor Story, has woken up. He homer twice, drove in all the Jays' runs on Saturday, um, 26% uh, strikeout rate in April. No Jays player has driven in more runs in May than he has. And, man, Trevor Story just absolutely came alive. That three-home run game scored five and drove in seven uh, in that on Thursday against the Mariners going four for four. It's a grand slam the next day. Things were so bad that between Wednesday and Saturday, his OPS jumped 133 points. 133 points. It's insane. They're finally starting to put it together. He's still at 109, way to run, create a plus. But this is what the Red Sox were paying him for. I mentioned Jackie Bradley earlier in the show when we were talking about the Hunter Renfro trade. Hunter Renfro trade. He finally hit his first home run. They remain, I mean, it's, it's a massive hole, right, for them to get back in this thing and try to catch the Yankees. But the expanded postseason for this team and the amount of talent they have, you have to wonder, did the Red Sox just wake up? Well, as you look at Trevor Story in particular, this was a guy that threw 25 games heading into the series against Atlanta after the first game there, where he did go two for five, actually. So if you want to throw another good game on there. But once he hit his first home run against the Braves in a 5-3 loss for the Red Sox, he's hit six home runs in his last 10 games. He struck out just eight times. And, of course, you've seen all of his numbers go up. Prior to that, he was hitting 204. He was homerless with 36 strikeouts in 25 games. So it's like he flipped a switch and turned back the clock or, or turned back the venue, I guess, to look more like the slugger that he was in Colorado. Let's uh, look at the American League Central where the Minnesota Twins continue to have a pretty comfortable lead because the White Sox and the Guardians, among other teams in this division, seem to have the same problem a lot of the National League East teams, and particularly the Braves that we talk about all the time, are having. And that is, can you get to 500? Can you get above 500? Can you chase down the team in front of you that has a comfortable lead? And the answers to those questions is, well, the jury's still out, but while it is early, it's not quite Memorial Day, which is when I like to look at the standings and say, okay, where are we? These clubs have to be feeling like, all right, at some point, some of this stuff's got to come together. A lot like the Mets when we talk about how much pitching depth do you have, I think that's really become a central question for the Twins here because two months after trading for Chris Paddock, they just lost him to the, for the year for Tommy John surgery. Yeah. He made five starts for Minnesota, and they've got Miguel Sano after you know he's out with meniscus surgery. The rotation has had plenty of injuries. Four members of this rotation, Sonny Gray, Paddock, Dylan Bundy, Bailey Ober, who's now back, every one of them have been on the I.L. So it's been great for the Twins that they've kind of had Byron Buxton healthy-ish. I mean, they're managing his workload. He had a knee issue that he aggravated in April in Boston. Um, but this is a winnable division in, in how the, the Twins are able to keep that pitching staff afloat amid all these injuries and you know, make sure that they're not asking too much out of Byron Buxton and allowing him to be sensational when he is on the field. Uh, you know, this is obviously their division to lose. I mean, the White Sox, they got Lucas Giolito back, which is huge. Uh, they found, you know, Johnny Cueto, like, had his little douses of the fountain of youth where we know he has those moments where he just has those, you know, he'll have those clunkers and then he'll have those games where he's just, everything's working for him. Uh, but, man, that that White Sox lineup, you have to m- mention this, seventh in run scored last year. They're on pace for 576 this year. And they're 135 runs less than a year ago. That's where the pace that they're on right now. That's how bad yeah. this offense has been for the White Sox. So that's why everything's set up for the Twins is just it's it's not that they've been good, 
but they've also taken advantage of the fact that the White Sox right. have been nowhere near hit. what we expected. Yeah. yeah, no, they've been nowhere close. And this is not just, well, when they get Moncada back off the injured list, that's yeah. going to change everything. You've got some guys that simply aren't performing at a high rate. You have lost Eloy Jimenez. That doesn't help out matters either. But the White Sox have woefully underperformed as an offense for, again, here's that phrase, a variety of reasons. Yep. There are a lot of different guys to look at that have done that. I want to look at Byron Buxton because the start that he got off to this year was ultra exciting. He hit six home runs and was batting three fifty one through his first 10 games. He looked like it was time to just really start building the statue, if you will, in Minnesota. They've been waiting a long time for Byron Buxton to look like the impact player and the superstar that many people believe, myself included, that he could be. But in his last 17 games, five home runs, he's batting a buck 56. Uh, not a ton of strikeouts for him, but also not a ton of hits either. But he is a premium defender. When you go through injury, that can cause you to change your game just a little bit. There's no two ways about that. But for Buxton, as hot as he was over that first week or two that he was you know, back in there for Minnesota, he has cooled off quite a bit here in the last three or four weeks. Yeah, I mean, but the, the numbers overall, I mean, are still insane, right? I mean, still, it's, he's still hitting 64% above league average, still already has a 1-6 war. Um, you know, I think the thing that they're going to have to be careful with is just you, he has that track record. So how much do you have to, to manage? You know, you think about, you know, a lot of it's just like the NBA. People hate hearing about, you know, workload management in the NBA. But I think that's what you have to approach this with, with Byron Buxton because you need a healthy season out of him. You can't go through another one of these runs where, you know, he's like, man, ultimately we're going to find out what this guy, you know, is capable yeah. of. How many years can year. you ask like, that? Yeah, how many, yeah, how many times can you ask that question? They've, they've found it this year, and I think they're going to be extremely careful with him. Uh, but, man, you, I just hope we look back on this and, and have these kind of rate numbers that we're talking about yeah. be a season-long uh, thing out of Byron Buxton. Well, speaking of health and for the Minnesota Twins, they, of course, dodged a big-time injury bullet when Carlos Correa did not have a broken finger. He was down for a while, but he is back in the lineup for them, which meant that they sent Royce Lewis back to AAA. So it's just one of those things that happens when you don't have a ready opportunity up there, but perhaps coming back as a third baseman would be in Royce Lewis's future as Gio Urshela is not necessarily cemented there for a long period of time, particularly if he doesn't hit. Out in the West, that 11-game win streak we were talking about for the Houston Astros, well, you would imagine that would push you up the standings, and it has as they're 11 games over 500 and have moved a couple of games ahead of the Los Angeles Angels as of Sunday's action. But both those teams seem to be primed to, you know, to vie for that spot all season long. The Rangers have made a little bit of a run, a little bit of movement toward 500, and after spending half a billion dollars on their new uh, double play combination, you would hope they could move towards 500 sooner than later. Uh, the Mariners, we talked about, they've been pretty disappointing. Same can be said for the Oakland Athletics. But uh, as you look out west, it appears that it's going to be a two-team race, and uh, that could mean some big disparity between the top two teams and the bottom couple of teams in this division just based on the early returns. I could not believe the Rangers, the Rangers, the Astros this week. Five home runs in an inning, the first time they've ever done that against the Red Sox, tied a major league record. What amazes me about this team is they're, you know, obviously they're up in the west over the Angels right now. But they lead the, the majors in homers, lead in fan graph war. We're seeing that next generation of Astros find their footing. Jeremy Pena, Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez. Those are the guys who are 1, 2, and 4 on this team in fan graph war. You've got, obviously, the Jose Altuve's, Alex Bregman are still there. But they've moved on to that next wave of players, which has been a, a big you know, piece in this puzzle for them. And in terms of the Angels, 
we've talked about Mike Trout. Obviously, Taylor Ward has been having a great year. Shohei Otani is a show, actually, every time he steps on the field. They are fifth in starter ERA right now. The last three seasons, they were 22nd, 29th, and 29th. Oh, yeah. It was their biggest problem. It was their biggest issue. And they've obviously got Otani, but Noah Syndergaard has been fantastic. Patrick Sandoval, Reed Detmer. I wonder about those last two guys, though, who have a combined— the, Sandoval has 87 innings a year ago. Detmer's through 82 last year across all levels. I wonder if they're going to be able to, to sustain that and have those guys have high workloads as the year goes on. But right now, they needed pitching. They're absolutely getting it. And I, you know that's been one of the best stories of this, of this Angels team is that they're backing up that great offense with some fantastic starting pitching. You know, another guy we did not talk about in that group is Michael Lorenzen, who, yes. you know, who was with the Reds, and they were kind of using him as that maybe he'll do some pitching, maybe he'll do some hitting. That hasn't really been a thing that they've tapped into to the degree of Shohei Otani, who is a leader in the clubhouse of all the hitting and pitching endeavors. All due respect to Albert Pujols and Yadi Molina over the past <laughs> week or two. But Lorenzen in seven starts, and this is a guy who wasn't a regular starter since way back in his rookie season of 2015 with Cincinnati. He had become more of a reliever for them, uh, has tossed seven good starts for him. He's 5-2 and two with an ERA right around three. And when you talk about, hey, what's gone wrong for the Los Angeles Angels, it has been we don't have enough pitching year over year. That's been the big issue for them. Uh, Mike Trout's injury status over the past few seasons has also been somewhat alarming and disconcerting, but he has been healthy this year. Shohei Otani is Shohei Otani. He's dominating on the mound, and you've got some guys around him, which staying power is a question, Corey. There's no two ways about it. But if you're the Angels, you've got a winning record. You've got a club that seems to be equipped to stick around, has some staying power. You've got an owner with deep pockets. What do you think they're going to be searching for around the trade deadline? More pitching. That's right, yeah. and, they, and they've got the option to go out and do that. I mean, and buy. To, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, speaking of pitching, by the way, in this division, uh, you mentioned the Rangers, how good they've been of late. Since April 22nd, they have the the league's best batting average against at 211, um, the fourth best ERA. John uh, Gray, by the way, just came back and has struck out eight against the Angels, then allowed two uh, in six innings uh, against the Astros his next time out. So some glimpses there. By the way, did you know Matt Carpenter was uh, signed in Texas? Did you I have did any idea that? that? Yes. They just let him go, so... I uh, had no clue that he was actually out there hanging yeah. on. So. He, he's a guy that really fell on some hard times, yeah. and he had been seemingly one of those Cardinals, just scrappy players that you just, like Colton Wong, yeah. who's with the Brewers now. But I always ask this every time they, he plays the Braves. Is, is it just, when is he going to find his moment to yeah. just be a thorn in the side of this club? Because he always does. But uh, big picture American League is the Yankees on top in the East, the Twins in the Central is the Astros just ahead of the Angels in the West. When we come back, we'll wrap up this edition of From the Diamond with a look at what's ahead the coming this coming week for the Atlanta Braves. And we'll do it next on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Let's take a look at what's coming up for the Braves as they begin a homestand. Corey, I'm sure they're happy to be back off the road. I'm sure they're not thrilled about the final note of this series, in particular uh, dropping the Sunday finale against the Marlins. And I would actually go back to the Wednesday finale against the Milwaukee Brewers as another game in which you had a chance to win and take another series. So some opportunities were left out there on the road, some wins, some winnable games were left out there on the road. Now, this does continue, though, what we've talked about, this string of 29 consecutive games, now that you're on the other side of that Milwaukee series, that you're playing against sub-500 clubs, including some in your own division. 
We've seen the Marlins. We're going to see them again. We're also going to get our first look at the Phillies, and we'll see if the Braves can take advantage of other clubs who aren't playing up to their capabilities. Yeah, they won't see a team with a winning record until they face the Giants. At least, you know, things obviously could swing. Unless it goes bad for them. Yeah, uh, until the Giants in June 20th uh, at Truist Park. But, you know, it just seems so weird that we're talking about it being almost Memorial Day and the Braves are seeing the Phillies for the first time who is, you know, they've opened the season against multiple times in the last few years and, just seems like that's always a, a an early stop on the Braves. Uh, yeah, aren't they supposed to open the season on the road every year against yeah, the Phillies and get swept? Right. Is that's that not right. the is that not the script? That's <laughs> that's what it's always kind of felt like, right? Yeah. But th- this Phillies uh, team is going to come to town with a pretty potent offense. I mean, they're they're top uh, seven right now in OPS, and certainly Bryce Harper, the reigning National League MVP, he had that PFP injection. He came back. Uh, you know, in the lineup over the weekend. So, you know, certainly, you know, you know what he's capable of, and and you know, he's inflicted damage. Uh, uh, to a, the nth degree against Braves pitching in the past. And obviously those new pieces they have, Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos, De- from a defensive standpoint, you know, because of Harper and this elbow issue and not being able to be in the field, there's an opportunity there to take advantage of what's not really a, a really great uh, corner defense from this Phillies team. But, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's going to be interesting that, to see what the Braves are able to get from Tucker Davis in that first game out. Uh, he looked pretty strong in the last opportunity he had at Milwaukee with that start, you know, going five uh, five innings without giving up an earned run. He's going to face, a again, a strong offense uh, as he faces the Phillies. So what are they going to get out of Tucker Davidson from this second start? I think it's going to be uh, one of the biggest storylines in the series. Yeah, and this was one of our holdover stories from the week that was for the Braves, the return of Tucker Davidson, as you still are looking for the answer to the fifth spot in the rotation and we are talking about, you know, knocking on the door of June. The Braves tried out a few different arms. Waskari Noah did not work. Bryce Elder did not work. Kyle Muller, good to see you. That didn't work. Only one start for him, though, so it's kind of hard to, you know, to know exactly what it could have been, but it wasn't a particularly sharp one for him. And as it happened, the Braves were just kind of in a roster crunch there and had to make another move. We haven't seen Spencer Strider jump into rotation, but now with Tyler Matzik out, which was another development over the past you know, week or so in Braves baseball, is – what does this bullpen look like down one of its bigger weapons already, you know, having come into this year, losing Luke Jackson, getting that news uh, prior to the season as well. You did bring in Kenley Jansen. You still have uh, A.J. Minter, who is pitching at an extremely high level this year. I think he's been the Braves' most valuable reliever. You've still got Will Smith, who has shown flashes at times that he can do the things that he needs to do at the very least. And has hit a couple of speed bumps as well, which over the course of a long season is to be expected. Some of these things, though, are going to get magnified because the offense has not been scoring a lot of runs. All of that to say, Spencer Strider right now has a big job, I think, to help fortify this bullpen and bring that 80-grade stuff out there as many times as he can and mow down the opposition and help the Braves turn some leads into some wins. Yeah, it may even not feel like it at all times, but you know, based on Fangraph 4, this is the second-best bullpen in the league. I mean, obviously losing Luke Jackson was a blow. Tyler Matzik's now, as you mentioned, in the aisle with shoulder discomfort. Uh, you know, Will Smith has had, you know, he got his second save, but he's had a 10-1 ERA in his last uh, uh, four outings. I mean, that's, you know, the big pieces of that night shift. You know, Cyber Minter's the only one left from that group. And I think that you go out and you get Kelly Jansen, and he, you know, despite the fact that he had that, that run of 26 consecutive saves snapped in Milwaukee, he has been, you know, I think as good as you could have hoped. The strikeout rate's been up over a year ago. The the walk rate's been down. AJ Minter, though, I mean, this it's been you know, staggering how many guys he's been striking out. When you think about the rate numbers, you know, it's yeah. in the the top four in the league. And then when you look around, you know, you push that that qualify, you know, go from the qualified relievers to over twenty innings pitched. 
No one has a better strikeout rate than Spencer Strider does. So as much as you'd like to see him get that opportunity to see if he can go out there and give you multiples as, you know, whether you want to deem him as an opener or you want to see if he can go out there and provide you starts, uh, you know, because you are down, you know, two guys from that night shift uh, group and, and Smith has not always been as effective as you want. Uh, you need somebody to step up and, and you need guys that can pick multiple innings as well out of that bullpen. They don't have a lot of those. Josh Tomlin's not running around that bullpen like he had in the past. And you, maybe no. Jesse Chavez can go out there and do it for you. But Colin I, McHugh I think, could, I think. Yeah, Colin McHugh. But I think you you feel like you found something in Spencer Strider. And I, I'm sure that there's definitely a sense of let's not mess with a good thing. No, and his work out of the bullpen has been pretty dynamic, I feel. And whether or not he gets a chance to start, we'll see. There's a lot of the season left to be played in that regard. And I don't think the Braves are necessarily locked in their final answer in this fifth spot of their rotation, though they would love for Tucker Davidson to come in and give them some consistency. He had shown a little bit of that, I think, before the arm injury uh, befell him in 2021. Then he came out and got a little bit of World Series experience, which you'll always take if you can get it, I guess. And the Braves clearly got the better end of the World Series experience overall by winning the whole thing last year. But, you know, Ian Anderson with six strikeouts in his loss to the Miami Marlins. I brought this up. I don't know that it really points out to anything other than just the pure dominance of A.J. Minter. It took six strikeouts for Ian Anderson to pass A.J. Minter on the strikeout leaders for this team. Minter's punched out 28 guys in 18 and two-thirds innings, and now at 42 innings, Anderson's up to 31 strikeouts on the year. So it took a, a good performance and half a dozen strikeouts for one of your starting pitchers who's out there every fifth day and has been, as he made his eighth start today, did Ian Anderson, to pass one of your relievers in strikeouts. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been a dominant performance for uh, for AJ Minter, who's 13 and a half Ks per nine, leads the Braves staff, uh, just ahead of Kinley Jansen and Colin McHugh, and then Kyle Wright is also on that short list. So, uh, pretty good work by AJ Minter. But let's talk about this four game series against the Philadelphia Phillies. You brought up Bryce Harper a moment ago, and you always know that you have to approach him very carefully. It felt like he really had the Braves' number. Early on in his career, particularly in his time with the Washington Nationals, it doesn't feel like it's been quite so much so in recent years. So I went back and looked. Last year, he hit 191 against the Braves. He knocked in three runs. They were all on solo home runs. So maybe that trend can continue. If you can neutralize him, which is a big if, maybe you can keep the Phillies lineup at bay long enough to let the Braves lineup kind of come to life against the Phillies rotation and against the Phillies staff that is not necessarily among the best in baseball in terms of pitching. Yeah, I mean, you still got Kyle Schwarber's gone deep 10 times. I mean, you know what Nick Castellanos is capable of, JTL Riomito. You know, this is a deep offense. Even Gene Segura right now is hitting 29% above league average, and he's got six bombs. So this is a, a really deep offense, and I think that's going to be one of the big pieces for this. I mean, the, the pitching matchup set up pretty well for the Braves as you look on in this. I mean, you got Max Freed going in the second game against Kyle Gibson, Ranger Suarez against Charlie Morton. Morton's uh, turned things on of late. Uh, that first game feels really important, though, because, you know, Zach Wheeler's got a 3 4 ERA. He's punched out 41. Um, you know, I, I just don't know that we we know what we're going to get out of Tucker Davidson. You know, he had a, obviously had a good outing the last time against this really strong Brewers offense. Um, but if he gets, you know, into some trouble against this, this uh, deep Phillies Unit. I mean, what is it? Was what's going to happen, and what does yeah. that set up for the rest of the series? Can he get through enough innings that you take stress off that bullpen and help out Freedom Morton later on? Yeah, and that's what you ultimately need is just the guy, the fifth guy in the rotation, to be able to be the patch that helps yeah. you get that rotation through every fifth day, getting as good a starts as you can. 
from all five of those men. That's why it is a rotation. That's what they want is for the next guy to take that baton and hand it to the next so that you can help out your bullpen, as you just said. I mean, I look at some of the other hitters in this lineup, though, and I know that most of them are, as you point out, hitting at or above league average by and large, but a lot of guys outside of Bryce Harper whose OPS is sub-800. In fact, Gene Segura is the only other guy with an 800 or better OPS as of the games of Saturday on the Phillies club and a lot of batting averages that don't necessarily get followed up with high on base percentages, if that makes sense. So standard eye test stuff, I feel like the Phillies pass a lot of those tests, but when you start to look a little bit deeper outside of Bryce Harper, who again is batting well over 300, approaching a 1,000 OPS, and has hit nine home runs in his 35 games this year and just had that platelet-rich plasma injection in his elbow, which has a torn UCL, which is going to have him serving as the club's DH for the foreseeable future. That also means, defensively speaking, that you have to put a couple of DHs out into the outfield, which would be, of course, Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos. But look, the Phillies have been a little bit better than I think people expected them to be in terms of defense. But when you flip the page and start looking at their pitching, just not a whole lot to get excited about. Aaron Nola has picked up one win this year so far. Ranger Suarez leads their staff with four wins. Uh, you know, that's a draconian status, I like to say. But when I do look at the starting rotation and I think, are these guys winning ball games? It tells me how deep into the ball game are they going and how often do they have the lead. So while it's not necessarily the stat to hang your hat on, it is one that still for starting pitchers, you'd like them to be around long enough to factor in the decision. You care about winning the game overall, but I think it speaks a lot to where baseball is these days that a lot of times you'll look at, hey, this guy started nine games. How many total decisions does he have? And how many games are you leaving up to your bullpen, which has been better for the Phillies this year? That had been their Achilles heel for a while, particularly a couple of years ago when it was absolutely horrendous. So if you're looking for some guys to watch in this series, uh, you know, got Zach Wheeler going for the Phillies the first time out. Ronald Cooney Jr. has taken him deep three times. If you're looking for an opportunity for Matt Olson to break out, Kyle Gibson, the former Ranger, who he knows all too well from his time with the A's, he's gone deep against him three times, a 500 a batting average and 16 ABs against Kyle Gibson. So uh, maybe familiarity there going to be something that helps Matt Olson get his way his way out of this rut. Uh, you know, and then they don't really have a lot of experience against Ranger Suarez. Ozzy Albies has taken him deep. Adam Duvall has, uh, but those first two series, man, it, it, you you look at Olson trying to find that opportunity to get his his groove back. And it could come against a pitcher that he knows really, really well. Yeah, so the Braves are going to line up in this series to throw Davidson, Freed, Morton, and Kyle Wright. Uh, we'll see how all of this plays out. It is a four-game series. We're back to those again. Yep. I'm not sure I love four-game series, but if you take three out of four, you might be able to talk me into it. The Braves at least are going to be throwing their three very best starters. And if you can get a good start from Tucker Davidson, particularly on a day that Zach Wheeler is pitching, you're kind of playing with house money at that point in some ways, at least in my book. Yeah, without question. So, I mean, again, what does he do to set that tone? Because you you got to like those pitching matchups. And the Phillies throwing out the ever-dangerous TBD on Thursday opposite Kyle Wright, so you always got to yeah, watch that out guy, for that guy. he can either win or lose That's right. a lot of times. I mean, it's all to be determined. And that we'll see what the Phillies are able to pull out of their – from up their sleeve, if you will, to throw a wrinkle at the Braves if they do. But it will be Wheeler, Gibson, and Suarez going – in those first three games of this series. And then, of course, you'll see the Marlins. And the Braves are not going to have another off get off day for a while. They're in a stretch of 14 games in 14 days. So that's something to keep in mind as well when you start looking at what can my starting pitchers give me because you're going to have to get, I think, as much as you can. And maybe we saw a little bit of that on Sunday when Ian Anderson came out to start the seventh inning against Miami. I kind of felt like everything was spent there through six for him 
and that's enough that you could have taken that and then turned it over to the bullpen, even if you want to stay away from certain guys. But when you're trying to manage, and, and I'm not making any excuses for bullpen decisions, and I don't make any of them. I've never managed a big league game. But you do have to think about the workload of your pitchers if you don't want to hear it. Well, too bad because you're playing 14 consecutive games, and it's not a video game. These guys aren't going to be able to throw every single day the top three or four guys in your bullpen, I mean. Yeah, and again, you know, you're, you're going to have to watch Davidson this next time out because he, he could be exactly like he was, you know, when they were in Milwaukee and he gives you, you know, five quality innings or he could be out in, you know, a couple and runs into some problems and all of a sudden you've got to, you know, go out there and try to cover a bunch of innings knowing that you've got a four-game series and no off days coming up. So uh, it just feels like that first start is going to be the biggest ones of these because obviously you know, they're trying to figure out what happens at five for the long term. Does that, you know, go until Mike Soroka potentially gets back after the all-star break? Or, you know, do we end up seeing them bring somebody else in? I think obviously, you know, in a best case scenario, you try to find an in-house option that you can roll with until, you know, until Soroka is ready to go. They've just been through so many different options. It, it feels like, you know, I mean, maybe Tuki Tucson ends up getting a chance to be, to pop in there. Just they're, they're going to, they've run through enough guys here. At some point, we got to figure out who that fifth guy is going to be for more than just one turn in the rotation. Yeah. And if you talk about a Braves club that starts to put things together, I still feel like they were looking for a starting pitcher over the winter. They weren't able to get yep. that done. They made their deal with Kenley Jansen to make the bullpen stronger. As it turns out, that was a pretty good deal to make because it did at least help the Braves in the bullpen department. And more more times than not here, since Kyle Wright has been able to solidify this, you have had four pretty dependable starters. Charlie Morton having to figure a few things out notwithstanding. These are four pitchers that you feel like you can run with for a little while, and we'll see what the Braves are able to do with it. But the Marlins are going to be on the other side of this four-game series against the Phillies as his homestand is going to be seven games for the Braves at Truist Park, where they are 10-11 and 11 this year. Getting over 500 in general would be great on this homestand. Getting over 500 and staying over 500 at home is something the Braves would very much like to see. Well, seven games here for the Braves as they begin this homestand. It'll start against the Phillies on Monday. Corey, as always, I enjoyed it. Look forward to doing it again next week. Yeah, we'll see if the Braves can finally put a streak together. Still waiting on those three straight wins, though. We're waiting on them. The three straight losses haven't happened either. For Corey McCartney, for Dom Shirosky, our producer here, Grant McCauley on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9. The game will join you next week. So long, everyone.